Hello, and welcome to the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. We'll hear from healthcare leaders nationwide about real-world solutions to the challenges that practices are confronting today. Solutions that help put the joy back into medicine. AMA Steps Forward program is open access and free to all at stepsforward.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Dr. Jill Jin, and on today's podcast, I have fellow AMA Senior Physician Advisor, Dr. Kevin Hopkins with me. Dr. Hopkins and I will be discussing wellness-centered leadership and how it is foundational to clinician well-being. Dr. Hopkins and I were both authors of the recently published AMA Steps Forward playbook on this topic, and while we wrote it in our capacity as AMA physician advisors working with the Steps Forward team, we will be discussing it today through the lens of our clinical roles, myself as a practicing internist and Kevin as a physician leader in primary care. Kevin, you are well known to our podcast by now, but can you give the listeners a refresher on your current leadership role? Oh, sure. Thanks, Jill. So I'm a family medicine physician at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, and I have an administrative leadership role within our primary care institute. I help oversee as the vice chief of the institute, all of our primary care practices. So uh, general pediatrics, family medicine, internal medicine, and also our walk-in services like express care and urgent care. My team has operational oversight of those practices. So that's what I do day-to-day in addition to my clinical time and, and my great work with, with the AMA. Excellent. Thank you. So Kevin, I'd like to start by asking you, what does wellness-centered leadership mean to you? When I think about wellness-centered leadership, I, I think about within the framework of an organization, purposefully building and maintaining a wellness-focused culture. So the leadership and culture, I think, are, are inextricably tied to one another. And when you think about organizational culture, to me, that means, you know, what is it like to work here? When I do recruiting of candidates, I, I want them to know, what's it like to work here? What's the, what's the organizational culture like? And leaders within an organization and leaders' behaviors influence organizational culture. It just can't help but influence organizational culture. They, they speak volumes about who we are, who we want to be, and what we value. And so within any healthcare organization, we will do a lot better if we focus on building and maintaining a culture of wellness. And that starts with our leadership. That culture of wellness includes a work environment that's saturated in values, attitudes, and behaviors which support self-care, professional satisfaction and growth, and compassionate care for colleagues, patients, and for ourselves. Wellness-based leadership also includes building and maintaining trust. We know trust to be vital in any relationship, but particularly in in a, a leadership position. Trust is important from both an internal aspect as far as how we build and maintain trust within our organization and those stakeholders, as well as external. So having the ability to to trust what our leaders think, say, and do, and what they think, say, and do will be consistently right for our organization and for our people has really high value. And I believe that being able to trust that is in part rooted in wellness-based leadership. An organization's culture of wellness where leaders think, speak, and act in ways which demonstrate a high value for people in relationships, to me, that's really what wellness-based leadership boils down to. So in terms of trust, yes, very important. What specific behaviors can leaders engage in to create that sense of trust? A few things. 
doing what you'll say you're, you're going to do, I think is a big thing. It can take years to build up trust in any type of relationship, and it can take a moment to destroy it, right? All of us have seen that happen in relationships at work. A lot of harm can be done in a relatively short period of time if we don't follow through and do the things that we say that we're going to do. I've known a lot of people in leadership positions that say the right things, but they don't always do the right things. They mean to do well, but they overpromise and underdeliver. And that is a, a an enormous way to really break trust in our relationship. And then once you've broken it, it's hard to get it back, right? Yeah. And I think another piece of that is, like you said, the actions, but specifically actions to make their clinicians feel valued. This whole concept of feeling valued has, I think, been coming up more and more recently in our work. And essentially, that's just making clinicians feel seen and like you were saying, feel heard. And I, I definitely can say from a personal perspective that that's a key piece of wellness, this culture of wellness in this organizational state of well-being. There is more and more data suggesting that as well. You know, for example, a paper that was recently published in JAMA Health Forum last year in 2022 by Dr. Mark Linzer, myself and other colleagues, showed that clinicians who felt valued by their organizations had only a 37% burnout rate versus those who did not feel valued had an average 69% burnout rate. This is a 32% absolute reduction, not just a relative reduction, which is huge. I mean, that number speaks volumes. Yeah, that's a great example, Jill. And it really speaks to the business case for wellness-centered leadership. Like, Not only is it the right thing to do for our people and for and for the relationships, but it's it's also a good business decision, right? Because employees who feel valued by their leaders and by their organization, as you mentioned, they're significantly less burned out. And as a consequence, they're significantly less likely to leave their job. So that helps to decrease turnover, at a, especially at a time when we're all struggling with workforce availability and reliability and things like absenteeism and all of those all of those issues that we and our HR colleagues are, are dealing with in organizations. If we can do something that helps to reduce turnover or FTE reductions and all the costs that comes associated with those, it's it's kind of a no-brainer from a business perspective. Yes, absolutely. Let's say that you are a leader of an organization and you're struggling because you do sense that trust is low, morale is low, that burnout is high, your clinicians are not feeling valued. What can you do on a practical level to to change this culture? Well, in the playbook, we write about five leader behaviors. These are very practical examples, and then we can get more in depth as we go along through the conversation. So the five are include, inform, inquire, develop, and recognize. So include. We need to create an environment, maintain an environment where, where everybody's treated with dignity and respect. We need to consistently inform. And so that means transparently sharing what we know at least as transparently as we possibly can. There are some things that maybe we don't want to share right off the bat, but a lack of information or high degree of uncertainty is not good for any organization. And so informing when when we can and where we can. Inquiring, consistently soliciting honest input and feedback from those you lead. I, I think the best leaders ask more than they tell. So asking more questions to increase your own understanding and find out problems and solutions from your, your front line is going to be 
way more valuable to the organization and gain a lot more respect and buy-in from your uh, workforce than telling everybody what they're doing wrong or how to do it better. The fourth one was, was developing. So nurturing and supporting interests and aspirations among those that you lead. What are you really passionate about? What gets you out of bed and gets you to come to work every day? And then we can leverage those passions and interests and aspirations to help that person go further in their career. And that therefore drives our organization ahead. And then the last one was recognize. Expressing appreciation and authentic gratitude for, for people, for relationships, and for what they do to take great care of patients and to take care of the organization. So those five key leader behaviors, again, are include, inform, inquire, develop, and recognize. And I think that those really underpin some of the values that really make a good leader. Yeah. Let's talk about feedback a little bit more. I think when you said a good leader you know, asks more than they tell, that is a powerful statement. How do you give effective feedback and receive feedback effectively as a leader? Well, so my typical strategy for giving feedback prior to the last couple of years has been to employ a method that I affectionately call the crap sandwich. And that's, <laughs> that's where, you, where you give a compliment and then you give somebody the, 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 the nugget, what you really want to communicate as far as like, here's what you could do better, the opportunity. And then you give them another compliment to, to end the, the interaction. And I learned that a long time ago. I don't know that that's the most effective way <laughs> to give <laughs> feedback. So I know a lot of people use that technique though, but I feel like I've learned some better ways. So the first thing that I like to do when I want to give somebody feedback is number one, ask for permission. I want to make sure that that person's in the right mindset to be able to receive the feedback for what it's worth and not just as a complaint or, or constructive criticism. Not everybody's available mentally to, to receive feedback in the moment when we're ready to give it. So, and if they say, no, I, I actually am not right now, that is fine with me. When is a better time later that we can have that discussion because I, I'd like to give you some feedback. So I ask for permission. And then I use questions that are really drawn from appreciative inquiry that we use, you know, with our patients and, and acting more like like a coach than a manager. So I use questions like, how do you think that went? Or what did that feel like to you? What might you have done differently if you were in the same circumstance over again? Or what do you wish you had known before going into this conversation? You know, do you feel like you had all the tools that you needed to be able to do your job effectively in that moment? So I start off with asking those questions and sort of try to get the person to reflect and give some self-evaluation and then I'll often ask, how would you prefer to be recognized for a job well done? Nobody likes to be criticized in public, <laughs> but there are people who prefer to be praised in public and wish that others could overhear when we're telling them they did a good job. So that's kind of the three steps that I use to approach to, to giving feedback, asking for permission, appreciative inquiry to try to gain some self-reflection, and then ask the person how they like to be recognized. What about you? How do you give feedback? whether that's with with students or with patients, or how do you like to get feedback from leaders in your healthcare organization? Well, when I think about giving feedback, I will say from my clinical practice, I'm mostly thinking about feedback to you know the practice managers or the medical directors, kind of to my leaders about how things could be improved. The most important thing from my perspective is that they are 
listening. And it's not just, you know, they'll often come and say, you know, is there anything we can be doing better to make you feel more valued, to make your clinic run more, more smoothly, to make your patients happier? And I think that the most important thing that will make me feel more motivated to give the feedback is if I believe that they are listening and that they will actually act on that feedback, which I think is sometimes missing as that follow-up. They'll listen at the time, say that is great feedback, we'll get back to you. And then they never do. So I would say that is where the disappointment often comes. In terms of receiving feedback, one of my colleagues, I will tell you, once when she was newer in her practice and still getting used to things and getting the hang of the pace that we were going at in our clinic, I remember within, I think it was within her first half a year of practice, she had not been in our clinic very long. One of the leaders in our, in our group had a meeting with her, sat down with her, and the first thing she said was, we need to figure out how to make you more productive. My colleague was just crushed. She was absolutely traumatized and just felt so bad because she was already trying so hard and was, you know, already struggling so much. And the way that it was framed was, I would say, not an effective way of giving feedback. So I think that the appreciative inquiry where you go in and say, what are the challenges here? What did your, you know thoughts and ideas. And yes, the goal is ultimately perhaps to increase productivity. But when I heard that, I just thought this is the disconnect right here, right? Is that we're not speaking the same language. Oh, how disengaging, you know, it is to hear that because it implies that that you're a problem to be fixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of the, 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 with I, within the relationship context of, you know, it's not so much what you said, it's how you said it. We can deliver the same message in a much different way. That's going to be received in a much more favorable way than saying, we got to figure out how to get you to be more productive. I think you and I had a conversation once about, about feedback. And I told you a story and I, I alluded to it a little bit ago, like asking people how you prefer to be recognized for a job well done. I was new into a leadership position and I met with all of my team members one-on-one and I asked them, I asked them that question, how would you prefer to be recognized for a job well done? And I was, I was actually kind of surprised by the feedback that I got or by the responses that I got, because some people that I thought would want to be praised in front of others, they would be in reality mortified if I were to do that. And that would actually be disengaging to them. And so I found out a couple of people, my team actually preferred like a personal handwritten note that I would send to their home or, uh, you know what, just a text or an email is fine. Or, you know, maybe a nice pat on the back and, and just say, I did a good job. That's all I really need. And yet if I applied my assumption of how people would like to get positive feedback across the board, like I said, I would actually probably inadvertently end up disengaging some people because of embarrassment. Yeah, that's true. We did a similar exercise once in our practice. And I remember it was interesting to me, some people, you know, their way of being recognized was more from the, you know, professional development standpoint, they wanted to kind of advance in their their career track and academic promotion and things like that. And then others, they actually wanted to be recognized mostly by their patients, which I thought was very interesting. They're saying that when they see those positive patient reviews and when those are shared among the group, that to them was the most meaningful thing. So I just thought it was very interesting how it was people had very different different ways of 
feeling most rewarded for their job. We talked a little bit about communication strategy and just being very intentional about that communication strategy. I mentioned earlier, doing more asking than telling. You mentioned, make sure that you're listening, right? And there was a a recent podcast episode here, AMA Steps Forward by Dr. Sarah Richards from University of Nebraska Medical Center. And it was based on the Steps Forward toolkit about doing a listening campaign. And I got a lot of great information from that, from that toolkit and from the podcast that was associated with it. So, you know, if people are interested in learning more, I would, I would encourage them to check that out. Um, and communicating transparently to communicate that something is ongoing, even if no progress is being made on a desired change. The meaning of, of, silence of radio silence is really open to interpretation, right? And so we often interpret that to mean, well, they've forgotten about me or they don't care or it's not a priority, when in reality, it just might be, hey, wheels are in motion. And so it can be helpful to follow up on that, even if it's just to say nothing's happened yet. Those follow-up actions, I I think, are really important. And then, you know, when people do give us feedback, before we start making changes to like add responsibility to people that are already overworked and overburdened, are there opportunities to start with taking something away? So things like are getting rid of stupid stuff or de-implementation work that actually takes something off of people's plates. That can go a long way towards building trust and emphasizing the fact that we are an organization that values wellness-based leadership. And then the third point I'll make about it is giving autonomy and flexibility whenever possible. I have an example from my own organization where we tend to over micromanage physicians' clinic schedules. No one likes to be micromanaged, right? The least of which are physicians probably. And so when we do that and micromanage their schedule templates and who can get scheduled in there, what types of patients, what types of visits they can see, or the number of slots that they have to have and give absolutely no autonomy and flexibility to the individual physician, it's very disengaging. And we can, we talked about building trust and maintaining trust earlier. We can break that trust in a heartbeat if we're micromanaging things that maybe traditionally physicians have had a little bit more control over. And it can be very disengaging. Yes. That last point, I will say, yeah, from a personal experience is just so true. When you feel like every single appointment slot is being looked at, you're being watched over by someone. I mean, I think, you know, the underlying assumption when that happens is that, you know, your leaders don't trust you or they think you're fundamentally lazy and not wanting to see patients, which we have no incentive to see less patients. If we're blocking our schedule, it's because we need to for work-life integration to, you know, prevent ourselves from drowning. It's So I just think that, yes, giving physicians the autonomy within reason to control where and when and how they work is very important when it comes to feeling valued versus not by your organization. Nothing is more devaluing to somebody than than the implication or assumption that they're lazy, that they're trying to work the system, that they're trying to get out of work. And I refuse to believe that as a general assumption. And I honestly think that if our, our top leaders in our organizations understood that that's how their actions or their words are being interpreted, they wouldn't say it or do it in the same way. Yes, absolutely. To recap, wellness center leadership is absolutely the foundation of clinician well-being. Leaders who can help their workforce feel valued and less burnt out by building trust, so not just listening, but also taking actions to make tangible changes when necessary, 
those are the ones who will lead their organization to success in that their clinicians will not turn over. They will keep on seeing patients and their patients will get better care. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all aiming for, right? Is is the highest quality patient care. Yeah. All of those, all of those things, it's no accident. They result in better patient care, more, more fulfilled, more engaged, more valued caregivers deliver better care. Here within our organization in Cleveland, we talk a lot about treating patients and fellow caregivers as family members and treating the organization as our home. And I think that's a, it's a nice image because if you think about how we treat each other and our patients and how we treat the organization, if we really take care of each other like family and take care of our organization like our home, what is the next right thing to do becomes more clear more often and making decisions about relationship-based care, relationship-centered care and valuing those things just comes into a lot better focus. Well said. For more details and examples, please check out the AMA Steps Forward Wellness-Centered Leadership Playbook at stepsforward.org. Thank you for listening to this episode from the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. AMA Steps Forward program is open access and free to all at stepsforward.org. Steps Forward can help put the joy back into medicine by offering real-world solutions to the challenges that your practice is confronting today. We look forward to you joining us next time on the AMA Steps Forward podcast series. stepsforward.org.